Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40? Isaiah chapter 40. Reading from verses 1 to 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's take a moment in prayer as we come to the Lord's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that this Lord's day we can meet on the eve of Christmas, to think about and to focus on this great plan of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you've made a way of salvation for us. And Lord, we pray that as we sit under this word, that you would wake up in us new affections for you, a new assurance of our faith, and the joy of our salvation in a whole new way this morning. We pray, Father, that we would leave this place rejoicing in what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning I'd like to think about the way of salvation that God has prepared for us. The way of salvation that has been prepared for us in Jesus Christ. Now as we find ourselves very close to Christmas, perhaps some of us it's kind of caught us out. In fact, one of my colleagues at work is, is still buying Christmas presents only yesterday. Some of us perhaps are more prepared for Christmas than others. And we recognize that there's preparation that goes into preparing for the big day, for Christmas Day. And yet without the incarnation of the Son of God, there would be no Christmas. As we look at these verses in Isaiah 40 this morning, we see that the greatest of preparations had to happen in order for salvation to be made possible for the people of God. This wonderful way of salvation that we're going to see in Isaiah 40. There's also the way of salvation that God has to prepare in our hearts as well. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts, regenerating us and making us born again so that we can believe the gospel and be saved. There's also the call to Christians to be prepared for the Lord Jesus' promised return. We're people who, there is a way that's been prepared for us. We are people for whom our hearts have been changed, that God has prepared our hearts to be able to receive the gospel and to believe. 
And we're also people of God who we persevere in the faith. And we're prepared for the Lord Jesus' promised return. I believe also in the busyness of Christmas and all the things that are going on, all these good things that are happening though, but we have to be also prepared in our hearts. That we have to not get too lost in what's going on around us. And in this time, focus on what God has done for us. Before we look at these amazing verses in Isaiah 40, I would just like to go back a bit to the previous chapter in Isaiah 39. In the preceding chapter, Isaiah 39, we're left on this kind of cliffhanger, a kind of a a cliff edge that that the, the prophet leaves us on. And we read about King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, who up to that point had been a very faithful king in the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, Hezekiah was the first king to fully cleanse the whole of the nation, the whole of the temple. He he took all of the filth out of the temple, threw it into into the Kidron Brook. He cleansed Judah of all the idol worship. He was a wonderful king, Hezekiah, in many ways. And he led the nation in prayer when the king of Assyria attacked them. How often do we see our leaders, our national leaders, leading the nation in prayer? In fact, not at all now, but King Hezekiah led the whole nation in prayer. And King Hezekiah, we read later on in this chapter, he was recovering from an illness. An illness that would have proved fatal. But for the Lord's kindness in healing Hezekiah and granting him another 15 years of his life. So you'd think this was a rather humbling thing that he'd been through. He'd nearly lost his life and yet God had granted him 15 more years. But when the prince of Babylon had heard that Hezekiah had been sick, he he sent these envoys uh, with presents to, to give to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, in this moment of weakness that we can all have, many of us, perhaps we may boast on social media, perhaps, but King Hezekiah decided to boast by showing these envoys around all of his wealth. We tend to take a picture and put it on the internet now, or he just invited them in and showed them everything. Look how wealthy I am. Look at all the stuff I have. And the envoys went away. But this act of pride displeased the Lord. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah to warn Hezekiah that everything that was in his house would one day be taken away into Babylon. And sure enough, we see after Hezekiah, his son Manasseh, comes to the throne, the most of the evil of the kings, just like King Ahab in the northern province, Manasseh practiced witchcraft and divination. In fact, he even burnt his own son in the fire. He shed a lot of innocent blood. And there was a great sin under the, under the reign of King Manasseh. And God was greatly displeased at the way that Manasseh led the nation. And even though we see that there's a revival under Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, who, who like Hezekiah, was a godly king, the, the sin, the great sin that was committed under King Manasseh, greatly displeased the Lord. And eventually, Judah fell to Babylon as the prophet Isaiah had warned, and they're taken into exile into Babylon. And this is where Isaiah 39 leaves us. Tragedy in the land of Judah. Great sadness that has happened. And yet in this really dark moment, this this shaft of light shines through at the beginning of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly, 
to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. These are words of great comfort. God has not abandoned Judah. They may have abandoned him and sinned against him. But he has not abandoned them. And this is the great assurance for us this morning. If we truly are in Christ this morning. That God will never abandon you. He may discipline you. He may have to humble you. That has happened in my life many times. But he will never abandon you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And so these words are such great comfort. God has not forgotten his people. He will bring them through the refining fire. He will change them. He will bring them back to him. And even though we see that the great folly of of Hezekiah and the evil of Manasseh, God has a plan of redemption. And here we see this plan of redemption for the nation of Judah. There's this kind of two layers, that redemption for Judah. But there's also the redemption that God has for his people, the salvation of the whole world. And I just want to focus really, as we look at this, on verses 3 to 5. I'll just read these again. These are the verses I want to focus on this morning. In verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There are three things I'd like to focus on from these verses this morning. Firstly, the lone voice in the wilderness. The lone voice in the wilderness. Have you noticed how the great majority of people are not concerned about spiritual things? The voice of truth and wisdom is so often drowned out by the noise of the world. The person who speaks truth is often unpopular. In fact, I found this myself, having ministered in the Anglican church, I was not popular in that denomination. And and likewise with others who wanted to speak the truth. The truth is not popular. The truth is often drowned out. We also see that often people need to be brought into the wilderness in their life before they're able to hear that, that voice of truth and to receive it. It's often when everything's stripped away. You you may have known people in their lives. Perhaps they've been through a divorce. They've been through sickness. They've been through redundancy. And in the devastation of that moment, God makes himself known to them. God reveals himself to them. They hear that voice once and for all. And they understand the truth. Verse 6 tells us about this voice. In verse 6 it says, A voice says, Cry. And I I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Surely the people are grass. This is a, a reality that everyone has to face up to, and yet often people don't want to face up to it. And it's the reality of our mortality. The reality that we are going to die one day, 
But almost every other day you, you read in the news about someone who's died. Some celebrity has died and there's usually some obituary of, of their life and all the ways that they've, uh, that they've blessed people through their lives and people have been inspired by them. People will offer testimonies about that person's life. And we recognize in that there's sadness, there's disbelief. They've actually gone. They're not with us anymore. There's the, the shock and sadness of losing someone whose life has influenced so many people. And then the reality that they're gone. They've happened in our own situation where someone we know and love has died. And the reality of human mortality is plain to see. And yet very often people don't want to face up to it. It's very often for many a a problem they can't solve. Maybe we think that sickness, old age and death only happens to other people. I was just thinking back to when I was 25 years old. I remember that age because it was an age where... I particularly enjoyed being 25. Just life was was good. I was enjoying my life then. And the stupid thing was, age 25, I really believed that I was going to stay that age permanently. I I don't know why I thought that, but in my head, this is me. I'm just going to stay like this. I'm going to be 25 always. And yet, as as we know, despite that kind of misplaced sense of immortality and invincibility I had age 25, you, you know how it works. Next thing you know, you're 27. And then you're 30, and then you're 35, and then you're, and then you're oh, nearly 40, and then, you're, and then you're 40s, and then, and then you're nearly 50, and, and you know how it goes. But as you start to get a bit older, you become a bit more aware of your mortality. That arrogance of youth just kind of evaporates. Suddenly you realise, I'm not what I was. Suddenly you see people in your extended family start to die out. You see aunties and uncles and, and grandparents, and then you realise... I've got no grandparents left. And then start to see your parents getting older. And you're thinking, well, how much longer have I got them for? And you just become more aware of Father Time just clicking louder and more clearly. And then this voice in Isaiah just yells at you. All flesh is like grass. And its beauty is like the flower of the field. The voice is saying, wake up. Your life is so fleeting. It's a vapour. You're like the grass of the field that rises, flowers, and then dies back into the ground. And it's the reality that no one wants to talk about. Even though it faces us day by day in plain sight. The reality of the transient and temporal nature of human life. We will age. We will get sick. We'll lose our strength and die. And of course there are many who die tragically in their youth. Verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. On the one hand, there's the transient nature of human life, and yet on the other, there's divine permanence. The Lord Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All of this will go, but this word will hold forever. The truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us is eternal. And the voice in Isaiah is the voice of truth. And there are so many other voices vying for our attention. And we're being lied to and we're being deceived from so many different directions. And yet this voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That voice that calls out to us. And secondly, there's preparing the way of the Lord. Preparing the way of the Lord. 
We've already considered human mortality. This reality that we're all confronted with. And the Bible tells us and warns us about our mortality. And that our mortality is a clear outworking of our sinful fallen nature. The fact that we age, we get sick and die is an outward sign of the curse of the fall of humanity. So we see that in our mortality. And yet there's something else as well at play here. There's the internal struggle of living at odds with our creator. And this plays out in very different ways. But at at the heart of it, there's a disharmony and a conflict. In fact, the prophet Isaiah calls it warfare. Essentially saying that the sinner is at war with God. And the sinner never knows that deep peace and joy that comes from being in communion with the God who created us. This struggle is warfare. And it works its way out in our lives, in our relationships with others. I think warfare is a very good description of the whole human condition. I know that we're very familiar now with warfare in the, in the world. We, we see war all around us. We kind of get what that looks like in a very real sense. And yet there's the warfare in our hearts. There's the warfare in our families. There's the warfare in our communities. Conflict, strife at the, or at the very heart of human existence. And yet the Bible tells us it wasn't always that way. We see life a certain way because it's all we've ever known. And yet the Bible tells us at the beginning, the first man and woman lived in the perfect world. There really was such a thing as the perfect world, in perfect peace with God and one another. But the Hebrew word shalom literally describes perfect peace and harmony that existed before Adam and Eve directly rebelled against God and ate the forbidden fruit And that perfect peace that was once there, that perfect shalom has been replaced by warfare and conflict at every level of human life. In fact, you could say that human human life is marked by a lack of peace. Warfare and lawlessness, chaos is at the heart of human existence. It's seen at every level, from the wars that we see reported on the news, to violence in the city centre at night on a Friday or Saturday night, to the couple that are always arguing and fighting, to children hurting and bullying each other at school. I remember looking back to school and thinking how cruel kids are, particularly as teenagers. I'm sure that hasn't changed. You know, we see in the, war, in the world that there's a, a call for a ceasefire. And that, that may, if there is a ceasefire, it may bring some temporary relief. But it will never rid the world of warfare. And yet in verse 2, what wonderful words these are. Verse 2. Warfare is ended, iniquity is pardoned. Warfare is ended, iniquity is pardoned. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful message of Christianity is war is over and we can have peace with God. Prepare the way of the Lord means salvation is coming. In the dark wilderness of sin and condemnation that this divine runway lights up in the darkness. A highway for our God. Jesus is that way of salvation. And in verse 4, Isaiah goes on to say, Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain made low. And uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain. Let's think more deeply for a moment about the incarnation 
of the Son of God. Because that is what this verse is talking about. And there are two main points to what the prophet is saying in verse 4. Firstly, it is that the mountains and the hills will be made low. The mountains and the hills are being made low. The incarnation of Christ was the intervention of God with sinful humanity. The Apostle Paul tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm sure we can all agree with that. I know I can. There is the problem that humanity is sinful and utterly incapable of access to a holy God. If you like, God is up there on that high mountain of Sinai and fallen humanity is in that deep valley of the dead bones. This distance between us and God is unreachable. But when God came to earth, the mountains were leveled and brought down to the ground level. The perfect Son of God condescending from the glories of heaven to become a tiny, helpless baby lying in a manger, in a backwater place like Bethlehem. The Christmas story, if we hear it a million times, should never cease to amaze us. That God did that for us. That God sent his Son for us. The awesome wonder of it, in Philippians, it says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. The mountains and the hills were made low when Christ came to earth. But secondly, every valley shall be lifted up. Every valley shall be lifted up. The incarnation of the Son of God was the blessing of sinful humanity. Every valley should be lifted up means that through faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross, fallen humanity is lifted up. In Ephesians, it tells us that God has raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are raised up. Christ comes down to earth. The mountains and hills are made low. And he raises us up. The valley shall be lifted up. The ground is made straight. We have access to God. Christ came down from heaven to earth and to the cross. So that through faith in his death on the cross, we could be raised up in him. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, the son of God became a son of man. So that the sons of men could become sons of God. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. When the Lord Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That we are lifted up In the words of Heart the the Herald Angels sing, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. We also see in John the Baptist, the forerunner, and if you want to turn briefly with me to Luke chapter 3, this passage in Isaiah 40 is talking also about John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, that voice in the wilderness that was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. We see that John the Baptist is that immediate forerunner to Christ. And he would cry out in Luke chapter 3 verse 4. He would cry out, prepare a way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. What was that message 
that John the Baptist preached? Well, the message he preached would be very unpopular in many churches today. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. Flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist's message was consistently one of warning and taking seriously the consequences of breaking God's law, the judgment of God, and fleeing from the judgment in Christ. How do we flee from that judgment? In in Luke 3 verse 16, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The way that a person flees the judgment is to be born again of the Holy Spirit of God. To believe the gospel and to be filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. For a person to be a true Christian, God has had to have prepared the heart to believe and be saved. And John the Baptist goes on in verse 17 to say his winnowing fork is in his hand. To clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Going back to Isaiah 40 in verse 7. Where it says, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. And this is the warning that the prophet Isaiah and John the Baptist both present to us. That all humanity must one day answer to the God who created us. And just like the farmer who goes out into his field to harvest. So at the end of time God will divide up all of humanity. The wheat and the chaff. The sheep and the goats. One group to eternal life. And the other to eternal condemnation. Lastly let's consider what Isaiah tells us about the glory of the Lord. Going back to Isaiah 40 verse 5 where it says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So I've already said the reality is that the unbeliever is completely disinterested in spiritual things. I experienced this recently when I was sharing my faith with, with a colleague at work, actually one of my big bosses, in all honesty, and uh, it's quite nerve-wracking, but I, I shared the gospel with him, and, and he said to me, well, that's very interesting, you know, I'm, I'm glad you believe that, I don't believe that, but good for you for, for believing that. The average person, that's the kind of response you'll get when you share your faith, they're, they're not interested, they think, well, good for you. But at the same time, if this message is true, then it demands our attention as it is the most important and wonderful news that there is. When I was ministering in Essex as a a minister in a a larger church at that time, uh, we we would run Christianity courses, and this this man had come along on one of the courses we were running. And he had made those first steps of faith. And he got in touch with me, and he wanted to meet up for a coffee. He had questions about about faith. And the, the main question for him, was he really struggled with the idea of forgiveness. Can God really forgive me? How could God really forgive me? This man had had an affair for 25 years. His wife had left him. And he said to me, how could God possibly forgive me after what I've done? He couldn't forgive himself. His wife clearly couldn't forgive him and then had left him. 
And he really struggled with, how could God forgive me for what I've done after all these years? And I tried to answer him. And then there are times where you kind of just feel out of your depth. And I was out of my depth in that situation. And I just found myself, I grabbed my Bible. I turned to Ephesians chapter 1. I just handed it to him. I said, well, just read that. He started reading. He looked up with wide eyes and and his mouth open. He said, if this is true, then this is the greatest news that there is. And I said to him, it is true. And it is the greatest news that there is. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins. Doesn't matter what you've done. In Christ, we have forgiveness. Past, present, future. All sin is paid for at the cross of Christ. Our access to that forgiveness is through our faith in Christ. The sad reality is that the unbeliever is incapable of an understanding of God. And you will have found this when you try to share the gospel with people. There's this barrier in their hearts that we pray that God will remove that barrier and, and enable them to see the truth. Theologians call this barrier total depravity. It's a total corruption of the mind, body and soul. The heart and mind, the imagination is completely close to God. And you'll often hear people talking about new age things, kind of spiritual new age things, yoga, positive energy or whatever, but never arriving at a full knowledge of God. And yet you do not look, have to look very far to see the glory of God. You only have to look outside to see the glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We see the glory of God all around us. Romans 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are not, so they are without excuse. Creation loudly proclaims the glory of God. Every mountain, every ocean, every sunset, every sunrise and sunset. Have you ever just watched on a summer's day a sunrise and and there's something so profoundly deep of the beauty of it? All the amazing wildlife and, and creation that God has created points to him. The human body, the complexity of even just a single human cell. To the marvel of, of the birth of a newborn baby. The word of God which reveals to us so much of the glory of God and his great plan of salvation. Church history where we read about the Reformation, the Great Awakening and all the different revivals where God has been at work in the church. The glory of God is seen right through human history. His glory and is the whole point of human existence. As Presbyterians, I don't need to remind you of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but we go back to it time and again. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The glory of God is seen most clearly in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to see what God is like, look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, through his earthly ministry, manifesting the glory of God, his Father, in power, in miracles, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes, calming the storm, casting out demons, raising the dead. The Lord Jesus, in his holiness, resisting Satan in the wilderness, living the perfect life which no one else has ever done, in his love and compassion, You notice how Jesus always had time for people. He was never impatient with them. He welcomed the worst of sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers, 
The Lord Jesus who wept at the tomb of Lazarus. The Lord Jesus who loved people deeply and always had time for them. But the Lord Jesus also demonstrates the glory of God at the cross. At the cross of Christ we see the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians tells us that for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The great wisdom of God which is beyond human understanding. At the cross of Christ we see the love of God. There's no greater display of love than at the cross of Calvary. Romans 8 verse 32 tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you realise that God has given everything for you this morning? In order that you can know him through his son Jesus Christ. But also the resurrection of Christ we see the power of God. In Acts 2 verse 24 God raised him up loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God did not spare the suffering and shame that our sins deserve. Christ drank the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In these verses, the prophet Isaiah had a foretaste of that glory in the vision that was given to him. I wonder this morning, do we see the glory of God in the cross this morning? The way of salvation that has been made for us. Those mountains that have been brought low through Christ coming to earth. And those valleys which have been raised that through Christ, we are walking into a relationship with him through Christ. Are you comforted this morning? That your warfare with God is ended and your iniquity pardoned. That great comfort we have. The prophet Isaiah ends by saying there will come a day when the Lord Jesus finally returns. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That day is coming with absolute certainty. Christ will come again. He will judge all of the earth. All flesh will see it together. The apostle in Revelation says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. One day all flesh will see him. Every knee will bow and worship him. And as I close, may we be prepared for that glorious day when Christ returns. We may have different views on eschatology. We may differ in our, in our understanding of how the Lord Jesus comes back, but we can be agreed that he is coming back. And we're called upon to be prepared for that day, to be fully prepared. As I close, that is the good news this morning. That what we celebrate is the mountains being made low and the valleys being raised up. That we can come in a moment to the Lord's table, knowing that we are fully accepted and fully forgiven. And fully redeemed. And my prayer is that this Christmas we will have a new joy in our hearts. To recognise what a wonderful thing this is. What great news this is for us. And for us to share with others. Let's bow our heads as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father we do thank you this morning. We humbly thank you that we can be gathered together to worship you. We thank you that because what you have done for us 2,000 years ago has made that all possible. We are so humbled, we're so grateful 
And as we come to the Lord's table in a moment, Lord, we, we come with grateful hearts. We, we are sorry, Lord, where, where we become almost used to this, this message. We pray, Lord, that today it would be new for us again. That you'd refresh our hearts. That we would be able to celebrate Christmas this year in awe of what you've done for us. Amazed by your kindness and your grace. And we pray, Lord, that you'd comfort us, reassure us. We also pray for those we know in our families, people that we're praying for, people that we're concerned for who don't know you. Lord, we pray that this Christmas, that those we know, work colleagues and family members who don't know you, that in some way we will be able to share the good news with them. That you will open our mouths to share with you, to share you with them, for them to hear the good news of Christ. We do pray that you would bring salvation this Christmas, Lord. We pray that others would hear the good news and be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.